Well, good morning. Good to be with you. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Judges chapter 2. Judges chapter 2. I really enjoyed that new hymn. Hopefully that will make it into the regular repertoire. Um, that was beautiful. Uh, I can't think of a... Uh, I'm sure there are just as good ones, but it would be hard to think of a better one to prepare us for the Lord's Supper. Uh, so we are in Judges chapter 2 this morning. We are going to hopefully make hay um, to get through this uh, these verses. I'm going to read for us out of Judges chapter 2, starting with verse 11. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and Ashtoreth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And He gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And He sold them into the hands of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. And they... Pray for us as we look this morning at God's Word. God, we come to You and we just thank You for bringing us together again around Your Word. Lord, this is a real treat. Lord, inasmuch as we're gathered here this morning once again as Your people, it is a sign that You have chosen not to return this week. And so, Father, we gather on this side of heaven around Your Word to be fed, to be reminded, to be upheld, to to have our focus renewed. And so, Father, would You feed Your people from Your Word. Lord, You have been incredibly kind in the idea of the Gospel. The idea that You would take enemies of God and make them Your very children is unreal. Lord, would that settle on our hearts this morning? Would You, Father, use this for the life of Your kingdom as You see fit? We ask this to You, the giver of Your Word. We ask it through Jesus, who is the Word made manifest to us, and that You would now apply it by Your Spirit through Your Word. Amen. Alright, well, um, as we begin this morning, I was thinking of a couple of different suitable introductions, and I was reminded of uh, one of uh, Heather's uh, stories of a a family who came in for, I'm guessing it's like a well-child visit or something like that. Um, This was years ago, and uh, anyway, um, she's asking them, how are things going? Uh, How are things going with the kids? And they said, it's not going very well, we're getting no sleep. Um, and said, okay, well, let's walk through this together. So they began walking through this. And she said, what have you done? They said, we've done everything we can imagine. We don't know what else to try. And they said, well, why don't we start with tell me what you've done? And said, well, um, you know, at this point, uh, we just gave them our bedroom. And they said, excuse me? I said, yeah, we gave them our bedroom um, because they, we thought maybe they didn't have enough room in their bunk beds. So we gave them our king bed. 
And they're sleeping in there. And then we thought, you know, they're having a hard time sometimes falling asleep. What if we gave them our television and our DVD player? This would help them as well. So Heather, um, now, praise God, Heather's in her profession and I'm in my profession. I just got to tell you that. She was very gentle and kind. I don't think I would have been so gentle and kind. Heather said, so where are you sleeping? Oh, well, we sleep in the bunk beds. Um, we're in their room, they're in our room. And Heather said, okay, where do we begin with this, right? Um, on a certain sense, we hear that, and you, you don't have to think hard about, okay, something's not right here. If you give them everything they want, that might not be the very best parenting tactic, right? Um, but you know what's funny? We all know this, and yet we actually treat God by asking Him to give us everything we want. And when He doesn't give us everything we want, then we're frustrated with Him as to why it is He wouldn't dare not give us everything we want. Um, Well, you're going to see, I hope this morning, that praise be to God, He cares enough to not give us everything we want. And He cares enough to actually dare to discipline His children. I've titled this morning as we look through the second part of this first opening to Judges, and we're going to get through the whole summary of the book at least. Uh, I've called it Children Saved Through Trials. Children Saved Through Trials. And I have a takeaway for you. Um, The takeaway is that God saves His children through trials, not from trials. Now, I don't know about you, but if I could rewrite that, I would like it to be God just saves His children from all trials. That would be unbiblical. God has chosen not to save His children from trials, but to save them via through trials. And we'll see that this morning in Judges. Now, last time as we looked at Judges, we focused on the half-hearted devotion of the people of God. And we looked at how they failed to fully conquer the land that God had given them. And in particular, we drew a comparison between us and them. We said that their mission that God gave them was to conquer the land, and they failed to do it. And in so doing, they evidenced half-hearted devotion. And then we looked at our own lives and said, well, our mission is laid out for us in Matthew 28 to go and make disciples. Inasmuch as we fail to do that, that evidences our half-hearted devotion. And we left on the table for examination in our own lives. Given that, would we be more, uh, better characterized as half-hearted or uh, full-hearted in our devotion? They were given clear instructions. Let me give you an example. There's many of these. Let me give you an example out of Joshua chapter 11. Joshua chapter 11. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them, for tomorrow at this time I will give over all of them slain to Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel who struck them and chased them as far as the great Sidon, or Sidon and Mesrephoth, Maim, and eastward as far as the valley of Mitzpah. And they struck them until he left none remaining. 
God instructed the Israelites to fully possess the land by conquering the people who were in the land. It occurs to me that if you're paying attention, as you follow through this narrative, that you might be troubled as to how is it that the God of the universe, to whom we sing holy, 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 could order that men, women, boys, girls, livestock, would be slaughtered. That is, the Israelites are not condemned by God for slaughtering these peoples. They are condemned by God for failing to slaughter these peoples. That's the clear reading of the text. Something about that seems hard to understand, especially from modern ears. So how do you settle that? Now, you might think that I feel obligated to answer that question since I put it on the table. Sorry to disappoint you, but I don't. Um, I don't feel that obligation. Um, I think it's a very far, fair question. I, I'll tell you that I don't think the commands of God in the conquest of Canaan and the other lands are inconsistent with the full holy character of God. But I also am committed that as a faithful teacher of the Scriptures, that the best way for me to uphold its integrity is to not give pat answers to hard questions. Um, If there's something about that that does trouble you and you want to think more fully about that, I would love to walk with you through that and to think on that. Still, I think there's a point that can be made about this that might help us at least get a foundation of how to think about it and also drive us into our text this morning. One of the striking differences between a biblical worldview and a modern worldview is that the biblical worldview assumes that we understand fallen men are enemies of God. Let me say that again. A biblical worldview assumes that we understand that fallen men default to enemies of God. Folks, that is not palatable to modern ears. This goes all the way back to the very beginning of the Bible. Let me take you to the sixth chapter of the Bible. So you know now that you're in the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 6. Verse 5, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. <laughs> the, the Hebrew there, it's so hard to translate that because he's wanting to make sure we get the, 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 the extreme explicitness of this. And the Lord regretted that He'd made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I'll blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven, for I'm sorry that I've made them. Verse 8, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. From a biblical worldview, there is something very surprising in those verses. Let's walk through those together. 
Verse 5. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now let that settle. If you're going to doze out or zone out at any point, don't let it be this one right here. I honestly think this might be for some of us a bombshell moment in understanding Christian theology. How do you understand that verse? Let me read it again. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now hold on. Do you understand this as a unique description of how exceptionally bad mankind was in the time of Noah? Or... Do you understand it as a description, a fitting description, of all fallen mankind across all ages, even me and even you? The clear argument from Scripture is that that is a fitting description, not unique to man at the time of Noah but a fitting description of all fallen man for all time through all ages, even me and friend, even you. Now wait a second. (laughs) If that's the case, then Tim, why is there not a flood every single day? Why doesn't He wipe out the earth every single day? Oh, what a great question. Okay, I posted it. I know, but still... It's a great question. If that's your question, you're getting the text. Because that needs an answer. I want to show you that. Go to Genesis 8, 20-21. And I'm also going to give some weight to what I said. I said that that is a fitting description for all men across all ages. I want to give you a little bit more oomph for that. And here we go. 8, 20-21. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Now this is after the flood. So if you think this that was a description of man only before the flood, then they're all gone and the only ones left are Noah and his family. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. This whole idea of just cursing it because of man, I'm done with. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. So after the flood, we have Noah and his family left over and the description of them is the intention of man's heart is evil from its youth. Now that sounds very familiar, doesn't it? Doesn't that sound a whole lot like the description of man before the flood? This is why I'm telling you, that description is a fair description, not just of man before the flood, but of all men through all ages who are fallen and born under Adam. So why does God not destroy the world every single day with a flood? One reason. A promise. You might call it grace. You might call it a covenant. It's because God promised Noah 
I'm not going to do it again. It is pure mercy. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that the level of evil demonstrated before the flood was not of epic proportions or even worse than it is today. It was. But realize the only reason that it is not like that today is not because the heart of man has changed. It is because God, in His mercy, is restraining the evil across the world. And He's been doing it from the time of Noah. He has said since the time of Noah, I'm not going to let it rise like that. I will restrain man from doing all that he really wants to do. That's part of the promise. It's, it makes logical sense. For man post-flood is just as evil as man was pre-flood. All the while, God has promised not to destroy the earth again. If that's going to happen, there's only one way for that to happen. And that is that God restrained man's evil. If you want to talk about that more, I'd love to. You can write down the term common grace. Common grace. That's what that's called in Christian theology. We've had a week full of tragic, tragic headlines. Let me give you some. Indiana man admits to raping and killing seven women. Body of Virginia college student positively identified. Canadian man runs over and kills soldier. Canadian man shoots soldier in cold blood. Man attacks New York officers with an axe. Couple shoots and kills two California deputies. Seattle student opens fire in cafeteria, killing himself and another student while critically wounding three others. That is one week of only the major headlines on one continent of our world. The intention of man's heart is evil, continually evil, from its youth. And the scary thing is, according to the Scriptures, folks, it's nowhere near as bad as it could be if God were not, more, if God were not as merciful as He is. Here's a takeaway. A biblical principle for Christian theology. Fallen man is evil and as such stands as an enemy of God. Please put that in your toolkit for a worldview. You've got to have that. It's so solid in biblical theology and it is tossed in most pulpits today. Now recall, I said there's something surprising in those verses in chapter 6. I think for modern ears, the surprising point is that God would ever dare destroy the earth Hopefully you see that is not surprising from a biblical worldview. In fact, that is the logical conclusion. That's what you would expect. The surprising point actually comes in verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now given what we've heard about fallen man and knowing that Moses, I mean Noah is one of those who has fallen, we know that this is not a description of Noah's righteousness. And if you have any doubt about that, you don't have to read far. You just go to Genesis chapter 9 and you find out about how far Noah and his righteousness and the righteousness of his sons goes. So how does this come about? That's the surprising story of Scripture. Though all men deserve to be destroyed by God, God has ordained that He will save some. 
By the middle of Genesis, we see that God is determined that He will show extreme favor to some. Not only is He going to save a few, but He's going to actually make them His children. Unreal. This comes through the promise of Abraham. And here we, we arrive at another major hallmark moment for Christian theology, a biblical principle. All mankind can be, will be, is divided into two categories. Children of God or enemies of God. God will save His children. God will conquer His enemies. So just, this is solid pillar. And that mic's close. Pillar in Christian theology. Folks, the surprising thing to modern ears is that God would dare to conquer His enemies. But the surprising point to biblical ears is that God would ever make any of them His children. And so now, as you go back and you think of Joshua and Judges, let's apply those categories. Who are the children of God in Joshua and Judges? The Israelites. They are those to no credit of their own will be saved by God. And the other nations, who are they? They're the enemies of God. They are those who God will conquer. So we can see how the idea of Israel conquering the other nations is fully consistent with the biblical narrative. Now realize, I have not in any way answered all the questions surrounding the rightness of this. wasn't attempting to, to be quite honest. But at least you can see where you might begin to argue towards its consistency. Now some things change in the New Testament. But the principle of the two categories, of the children of God and the enemies of God, it holds. And the outcome of those, of those two categories still holds. So pick any room of people, even today, any room of people, and you can divide them into two categories. There are those in that room, any room such as this one. There are those who are children of God, and there are those who are enemies of God. Now sometimes we have trouble distinguishing those, but God never does. There is a major change in the New Testament. What changes, thanks be to God, is who is allowed to be included in the category of the children of God. For in the New Testament, we are told that one does not have to share in the lineage of Abraham to be a child of God, but that he must merely share in the faith of Abraham. Galatians 3.14 makes this point, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham... What's the blessing of Abraham? To be called a child of God. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. Who are the Gentiles? That is those who are called the enemies of God. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised Spirit through what? Faith. Faith. This changes because God treated Jesus, His only Son, as an enemy of God. He slaughtered Him. And in so doing, ransomed for Himself children of God. Anyone who will give Jesus their full allegiance. So follow this. This is the beauty of the Bible. God treated the only rightful child of God like an enemy of God in order that some of the enemies of God might become children of God. We call that the Gospel. We call that amazing grace. And now the children of God are called not to conquer the enemies of God. Oh no, 
In the New Testament, we are called to surrender our lives to take this great news to all mankind and proclaim that those who are the enemies of God can be the children of God through faith in Christ till God comes through Jesus, His Son, again. That's our call. Lay down your life, you former enemy of God, now child of God, and you go to the world and I have ransomed from the enemies of God children of God from every tribe and every tongue. Don't worry, I know we're halfway through. We're halfway through in the notes too. That should make you feel good. And we have not touched Judges chapter 2. That was a long way to Judges, wasn't it? I wish I could apologize for that, but I don't feel bad, not a bit. But all of that, all of that in the back of your minds, Judges chapter 2 verse 11, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. I'm hoping (laughs) now more than ever you feel the incredible audacity of that statement. The people of Israel, those are the chosen children of God. They did what was evil in the sight of God? Wait, 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 wait a second. You say? I thought that's what the enemies of God do. Not what the children of God do. They must act and look like the children of God, and yet they act like the enemies of God. They might as well just have been the enemies of God. Yeah, you got it now. Verse 12. And they abandoned the Lord. Unbelievable. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the people around them, and they bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. The children of God acted exactly like the enemies of God. Verse 14. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. He gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And He sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for their harm as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. Folks, let those words fall on you for a second. Give them this biblical perspective. The hand of God was against them for their harm. That is not how God treats the children of God. That's how He treats the enemies of God. Exactly. If they're going to act like the enemies of God, then God is going to treat them like the enemies of God. The text is explicit about this. It's careful to explain that God brought their enemies against them. And it was God Himself that stood against the Israelites. This is why I think the book of Judges is so helpful in framing a biblical worldview. 
For while it's true that God will save the children of God, it is not the case that God will withhold calamity and trials from the children of God. In fact, quite often, God brings trials explicitly into the lives of the people of God in the process of making them the people of God, in the process of saving them unto Himself. The Israelites never marched out against anyone on their own except for God. He was the only one they ever marched out against on their own. Know this then, if you are a child of God, you will never face a trial or tragedy that God Himself did not ordain. does not mean that each trial and tragedy comes your way because you've been disobedient. Though it could be. But it does mean that each one that comes your way is ordained by the Father. I uh, now some of you are saying maybe not, but a lot of theologians would say here. Well, uh, you know, uh, I, I would rather you not say ordained. I would rather you say allowed. Now I laugh because I think that's a distinction that only makes sense by a theologian writing in a pretty nice office, right? Because that distinction I don't think means a whole lot to somebody uh, when they're going through a trial. Uh, actually, God didn't ordain this. He merely allowed it. Oh, I feel so much better now. I don't think that's the case. I think it goes, allow, ordain, He knew, He brought it, it hurts, right? That's biblical theology. Alright, I want to see in the little time we have left, I want us to see five ways God brings these trials... He's faithful to bring trials. I want us to see five ways that He uses trials in the lives of His people. One, God uses imperfect leaders to lead us through trials. God uses imperfect leaders to lead us through trials. I appreciate if I don't get any amens throughout this point. Uh, it would be fine if we can move right through it without it. Verse 16, The Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they hoard after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commands of the Lord, and they did not do so. This describes a cycle of rebellion found throughout the book of Judges. The people sin, they cry out for help, God raises up a judge, God saves the people, then they return to their sins. Same cycle all the way through, 12 different judges. Yet each time, God is faithful. Twelve times to raise up a new judge. The leadership of each of these judges was temporary. It didn't last very long. It was short-lived. Now, one reason it was short-lived is because the judges themselves, in perspective of eternity, were short-lived. Meaning they died. There came a point to which they, they couldn't breathe any longer. Right? So that made the end of theirs. But other times it was cut even shorter than that. Not only was their leadership temporary, but their leadership was partial. Unlike Moses and Joshua, these judges never held sway over the entire nation of Israel at once. That influences over large portions. Some had the full attention of the nation at times, but rarely did they ever have the full attention of the nation long. Their leadership was temporal, their temporary, their leadership was partial, and their leadership was flawed. If you dive into the lives of these judges, you will see all sorts of inconsistencies. Many of them were flawed. Yet God chose 
to use them. In the same way today, God uses leaders to lead His people through trials. They were temporary. They were partial. That is partial in the scope of their leadership, hopefully not in terms of favoritism, and flawed. But because they're flawed, we wouldn't be surprised. Pastors have beginning dates and end dates. Even when they want to be all things to all people, they will only be able to partially serve the needs of the people. Moreover, every pastor, save our chief pastor Jesus, is a flawed sinner. That's just the way it is. Yet amazingly, God uses these temporary, partial in their scope, flawed creatures to serve His people, especially in the midst of trials. Two, God is jealous to show His strong arm in salvation. Verse 18, Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and He saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judges. One of the comical parts of judges is the link that God goes to to secure glory from Himself instead of the judges. Take the two most popular ones. I'm going to guess these are the most popular, Samson and Gideon. Right? So, God cuts poor Gideon's army down to almost nothing. Now, the fact that he even picked Gideon to begin with just shows that he's willing to use very flawed creatures. But he cuts poor Gideon's army almost nothing. And just in case... Now, he does this to make sure that nobody can say, well, they had a big army, that's why they won. So he keeps cutting it down, right? Then, just in case somebody can say, well, they had the very best ones, that's why. Yeah, they had few, but they had a very few army, uh, a lot of them, that's why. God makes him cut the, the army at the end with the most arbitrary thing you've ever seen. Do you remember there at the end, how does he decide what the final cut is? How they drink water. Right? Now, I've heard people try all types of dances about this. Well, they knew which ones would be at attention if they looked up when they drink. No, the point of the text there is, that's just silly. So you keep the ones who drink like that and you toss out the other ones? Yeah, it's silly. What's the point? Because it's silly. God can use whoever He wants at whatever time He wants to accomplish His purposes. And if you don't think that's silly, what about Samson? Credible strength, right? Until what? You cut his hair? That's ridiculous, right? That's just funny. We all know that. What do you mean he's strong unless you cut his hair? That is hilarious. That's the point of the text, right? The point of the text is, of course it's got nothing to do with Samson. If you just cut the dude's hair, he's nothing. Yes, exactly. God is saving the people. And then you get the... One of my favorite stories. Uh, this random story during the time of Deborah and uh, Barak, or Barak, however you want to go there. Um, uh, these judges, and uh, you get you got the Canaanite general of the army, Sisera. <laughs> I absolutely love this story. Uh, Sisera's running from, he gets away from the entire Canaanite army. He gets away from Barak, which is not much to do. He's kind of a, a wimp. And he gets away from him. And he's, he's escaping and then comes out jail, sweet housewife. And she says, why don't you come on into my tent? I will give you some warm milk. He drinks the milk. She falls, he falls asleep. And what does he do? Why not grab a stake and drive it through his head? Right? 
So now, the army of Israel, imagine marching back with that. So we have the head of Sisera. Oh yeah, y'all found him and, and took him down. Actually, we found him in a tent with Jael. She took him down. She just gave him some milk and he fell asleep and she drove a stake through his head. Right? What's the point? The point is to make it look silly. The point is to say, God and God alone will save His people when He wants to save His people. We need to submit to pastoral leadership as the Scriptures command. We need to trust leaders and be served by them. But let us never, ever, ever mistake a leader for the one who saves us. God saves us. This is one of the reasons we try to emphasize the Scriptures as much as we do. When you hear the Word of God, you hear God. If you're showing up here on a weekly basis to hear wisdom from the pastoral staff, it would take about two weeks and we would be exhausted and you could go home. We have nothing to offer you if you subtract the Word of God. We cannot save you. But the Word of God can. We trust not in men. We trust in God who is jealous for His glory to save His people. God uses trials to lead His children to repentance. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. The Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. Over and over, the people of God were led to repent. This is the work of Spirit of God in their lives. It's a distinguishing mark of a child of God. At some point, he or she will repent. Enemies of God do not repent. Children of God repent. Enemies of God continue into their rebellion more obstinate than before. But oftentimes, God brings trials as consequences of the sin of His children to bring them to repentance. But you know what? Even if a trial isn't a direct consequence of your sin, it can still lead us to repentance. You say, well, how? Because no matter how hard the trial, you are still getting far better than you deserve. Think about that. We're the enemies of God. We can repent of our sinfulness and appreciate God's mercy in the midst of anything this world has to offer. That's what Paul can write in Romans 8. So they lead you like sheep to a slaughter. And all these things were more than conquerors, right? Recall, we are those who have repented and enjoyed the privilege of being the children of God if we repent. Every trial has the ability to shed light upon desires and places of our true joy. And inasmuch as these fell short of God Himself, it's an opportunity to repent. Notice how unbelievers respond to trials. It amazes me how quickly people become theologians when calamity hits. Folks who rarely utter the name of God, at least in a way that's acceptable will decide to pontificate questions like, how could God let this happen? It amazes me how religious cable news talk shows get when trials hit. Calamity strikes. Where was God? 
If God exists, surely He would prevent this. Notice this is completely opposite of repentance. And now for some honesty. I'm much to blame for the same thing. Some of the hardest times of my life, it took quite a bit of time before I got to a place of repentance. Quite honestly, I'm ashamed of pride that I've seen in my heart during trials. I am quick to question God. I am very quick to doubt His provision and His love. Brothers and sisters, will will we be those who are proud in the midst of our trials or are humbled to the place of repentance? The children of God always repent. For God uses trials to awake us from slumber. Verse 20. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and He said, Because this people have transgressed My covenant that I commanded their fathers and not obeyed My voice, I will no longer drive out before them any nations that Joshua left when they died. When he died. In order, look at verse 22, in order to what? To test Israel by them. Whenever they will care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and did not give them into the hand of Joshua. God allowed the enemies of Israel to stay in the land of Israel in order to test them. He used them to keep them awake. To awaken them to the fact that they are called to something different. Oh, brother and sister, God is kind to leave trials in our lives to remind us that we are the people of God and this isn't our home. He is kind to leave troubles, struggles, Maybe it's a struggle with sin you just cannot seem to get over. He knows that. He leaves it. I don't understand it all. But He'll leave it so that you depend on Christ. Maybe it's a son or daughter breaking your heart. You keep praying, but you keep trusting. Knowing you cannot rely on your own strength, but you have to rely on God. Maybe it is chronic pain. You say, oh God, why would you not relieve this? I know you don't even have to blink to let this go. And God says, I will not let you fall in love with this world too quick, too often. I will let you hunger day in and day and night, day in and day out for another day. Five, God uses trials to show us our need for a forever king. Verse 19, but whenever the judges died, see, that's a problem. When the one you're relying on dies, what are you going to do? There's a point there. Man, wouldn't it be nice if we had a judge, a king, who just never died? Whenever the judges died, they turned back. They were more corrupt than their fathers. Going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. It was a vicious cycle. These temporary, partial, and perfect judges were great gifts of God, but they died. Someone who is more permanent is needed 
is you get to the end of the book of Judges and you've cycled through all these 12 Judges, there is this looming desire for surely there's someone more. Precisely the point. That is the point of Judges. In some ways, it's an experiment. Put an ideal people, the children of God, and we're born out of a certain lineage, who God rescues from Egypt. Put these ideal people in an ideal place, a land flowing with milk and honey, outside of all of the, the enemies that God would conquer for them. Put an ideal people in an ideal place and see if they'll trust God. Now wait a second, that sounds real familiar, doesn't it? An ideal people in an ideal place, we could call that, shall we call it Eden? Right? And what happens? They don't. Something, someone else is needed. The point of Judges is there is only one who can rescue us. Only one who can bring us salvation. We need a perfect, universal, forever King. The book of Judges, like the book of Genesis, and Exodus, and Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and Joshua, cry out for a prophet, priest, king, who can ransom the children of God from their lives as the enemies of God. Friend, if you're here this morning, ask this question. In all seriousness, am I a child of God? Am I an enemy of God? You cannot do anything to go from being enemy to child. But there is one who has done everything needed for you. Put your full trust, all of your allegiance in Jesus Christ and He will save you. He will make you a child of God. It's the Gospel. It started way back in Genesis. We've followed it all the way now through Judges. And I look forward, God willing, to following it on in the Old Testament. Let's pray.